Amen. Good morning, Ocean View, here and online. So online, say good morning. Yes, good to see you. Well, we're continuing our February issues this, our February series this morning. We're looking at one of the most well-known Bible stories. Uh, great, that song we just had, uh, Moses and the Crossing of the Red Sea. And specifically, that one verse that said, the storms of hell are coming up. That's what we're going to actually be looking at this morning. Faith Lessons at the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 14. If you want to turn there, we'll kind of glance at that. as uh, That's sort of where we're starting from this morning. What do you do when you're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea? There are some trials that we face that seem insurmountable, like there's no way out. There's no chance of a good outcome. The Israelite people have been slaves in Egypt uh, for many years, and it had reached a crisis. The night of Passover has just happened. The firstborn male of every family has died, other than the Israelites, other, or those who put blood over the lintel, the Passover, including, as I was reading, it just jumped out at me, including the firstborn male of all the animals. There's a lot of dead bodies around. The king, Pharaoh, <clears throat> he's relented at this last terrible plague. Okay, I give up. The slaves can leave. And the slaves have left. <clears throat> the trauma of Passover, the death of the firstborn has passed. Moses and the Israelites are on the march. They're going out of Egypt. They've begun the journey to the promised land. The slave ghettos are deserted. The building projects are suspended. The sounds of construction have ceased. The great slave machine has gone. There's devastation in many of the provinces. There is an unearthly quiet. Pharaoh was plundered and humbled. His anger starts to rise as he contemplates the effects of the release of this workforce. In verse 5 we read, <clears throat> When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. I changed my mind. Has that ever happened to you? You find yourself in a really terrible situation. During it, you make all kinds of promises to God. You make resolutions to yourself. If I ever get out of this, things will be different. And then the problem suddenly goes away. And everything returns to a sense where you again have control. And you forgot all the resolutions and you try to get back to your status quo. Well, it says in verse 9, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Hahiros, opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh with, mobilized his army. He went after the slaves, and the massive crowd of slave people, his workforce, had come to a dead end in their travels. There was nowhere to go. The ocean, the people at the front, they saw the ocean in front of them. People at the back, they saw the advancing chariots of the army. The army's pursuing them. It's not good news. Pursued. Have you ever felt pursued? Oppressed? That sense that the devil is nipping at your heels. Sometimes you wonder if your troubles were put in motion by that invisible evil hand. 
Maybe you suspected that your depression or your anger had a sinister, evil source. Charles Spurgeon was a great Baptist preacher in the mid-1800s. He said this, The great tyrant has not forgotten you, and he designs your capture and re-enslavement. Now, the great tyrant that he's talking about is the devil. He is our spiritual enemy. Now, this devil sometimes launches direct frontal attacks against people. Um, you know, dark shadows, malevolent presence, demonic oppression, demon possession. However, usually our spiritual enemy is much more conniving and cunning and hidden. And the Bible speaks of the devil's schemes. It's not always obvious. The Apostle Paul argues that Satan is real, his attack is also real, and he is closer and crueler than we realize. A little bit like the Pharaoh of Egypt in this story. He's there racing after you and racing after the converted soul. Chariot wheels are spinning, armed with the arrows of discouragement. This devil seeks to defeat the children of God. And I think sometimes Satan pursues us with the intensity of Pharaoh, using our old friends to attack our faith, persecution, discouraging family members, showing you a hypocrite in the church, shooting an arrow of temptation right at your heart and soul, throwing spears of trials and troubles into your life, trapping you in difficulties, entangling you in trouble, cornering you in an impossible situation, luring you into temptation. The Israelites saw Pharaoh's army and they were frightened. The Bible record acknowledged their presence. Yes, Pharaoh is there. Yes, the army is pursuing. Yes, they present a danger. Now that leads us to our lesson this morning, the lesson that we learned at the Red Sea. We're going to kind of delve into this a little bit. Acknowledge your enemy, but keep your eyes on the Lord. Often we reverse that. We acknowledge the Lord, but we keep our eyes on the enemy. No, acknowledge the enemy, but keep your eyes on the Lord. We can acknowledge our enemy's existence and presence. Yes, Satan is there. Yes, he is pursuing. Yes, he is and presents a danger. We can acknowledge Satan's activity, but keep your eyes on the Lord, not on the enemy. Don't be intimidated by him. You can resist him in the power of God and by the blood of Jesus Christ. The title of our talk this morning is, Hey, it's okay to stare. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Just stare at him. Just look at him. And it takes us to that verse in Hebrews 12 too. And let us run with perseverance that race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. So in our lesson at the Red Sea today, the first thing we do is acknowledge the enemy. Just a few notes about the enemy that we all face in this world. He is a person. He is not just an evil force or a power. There is a personal devil, the Satan. There are names used for him. In Hebrew, it is Satan, Satan, and that word translated would mean an enemy 
or an adversary, somebody against. So Satan. So in Hebrew, Old Testament, you will see the word Satan. In the New Testament, in Greek, you would read occasionally diabolos, or the devil. And the translation would be the slanderer. He's the slanderer, the liar. Now, uh, the Bible uses all kinds of names for him. Let me read them through. Liar, murderer. Beelzebub, which translated means the Lord of the Flies. Everybody read the Lord of the Flies? That is a biblical analogy. So read it again and discover that the writer was a Christian and he was using a biblical analogy. That's why he calls it the Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub. Destroyer, accuser, adversary, deceiver, the evil one, father of lies, tempter, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the God of this world, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. <clears throat> a couple of things to remember. He is a created being. He is not like God. He is not omnipresent. He is not present everywhere. He is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. And he is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. He is like any angel. Although a fallen angel, he is a spiritual being, he is powerful, he knows more than humanity, but he can't be everywhere in the world tempting and deceiving. He does so through an army of emissaries, fallen angels, demons are called, or, or they are called evil spirits. You find it interesting then in the New Testament, only Jesus is tempted by the devil. All other oppressions listed in the New Testament are by demons, members of the evil army. Yet in our spiritual battle that we go through, it's kind of all lumped together and we say, you know, the devil was out. Well, no, it wasn't the devil. It's probably, you're not that important. You're probably one of the emissaries. Uh, I remember doing my grade 12 final English thesis, and we could do it on anything we want, so I picked the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. And I remember this quote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. So how do these evil spirits, how do they interfere with our lives? Well, I think if you think of yourself on a long, narrow street, on both sides are two-story row houses, and at the other end stands Jesus. The Christian life is a process of walking down that long street of maturity. Nothing is going to keep you from reaching him. You've received Christ, you've received the Messiah as Savior and Lord, and you fix your eyes on him, and you start walking. Now, the world still has Satan's influence. Houses on the side are inhabited by those who would keep you from your goal. They can't block your path or slow your steps. But instead, they hang out the windows, calling to you to distract you from your walk toward Jesus, from your race. And so they'll be saying things like, I've got something you want, or there are temptations. Oh, the accusations. You're stupid. You're still a sinner. You should be ashamed of how you acted 
You don't have time for worship and prayer and Bible. There's too many good things to do. And the purpose of these voices are to slow you down. Hey, 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 just sit down. Give up on your journey. It's too long, too hard, and too lonely. But remember, Satan can never again own you. But he will seek to influence you to least effectiveness. Temptation, accusation, deception. Just don't give him any more power than he really has. Paul readily acknowledges the work of Satan in Ephesians. He said, our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is against spiritual forces of evil, people hindering the ministry, troublemakers, false apostles, idolatry. Paul saw the direct influence of Satan in his illness at one point. In other times, he, he had frustrated travel plans, and he said, you know, Satan's getting in there. Even in the bitterness and unforgiving attitudes amongst the people around him, he saw the influence of Satan pushing people to their least effectiveness. So how do we respond to the struggles with these spiritual forces? Well, Peter he tells us, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But resist him, standing firm in the faith. Resist him. Whenever we resist the slightest temptation, we honor God. Whenever we overcome the smallest problem by trusting Jesus, then God is glorified in our lives, magnified. Whenever we choose character over convenience, faithfulness over ease, honesty over deceit. We bring honor to the Lord himself. Whenever we serve God with obedience, even in the small things, then God is magnified. We continue to read in Ephesians 6, uh, Paul says, therefore put on the full armor of God. That's what it's all about in defeating Satan, defeating these attacks. Put on armor so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Resistance means taking a stand. Resistance means speaking out the truth against the jeering, the taunting, the tempting, the accusations, the put-downs. You take a stand against the evil one. And you say, that's a lie. You know, most times that is the issue. It's not all about the things going on. It is in our individual lives. Sometimes we just have to say, no, that's not true when doubts come. When we start putting ourselves down, we start wondering, did I do it right? What's going on? What's wrong with me? That is a lie. Satan, stop it in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the truth and the way and the life. 1979, I was installing countertops in downtown Vancouver. While I was going to Bible school, I had a job installing countertops. And I went right down to Vancouver, right downtown, lots of houses, blah, blah, blah. And I had to go in a back alley. And I was going down the back alley, and I saw, well, there's the house that I want. I passed by this, uh, this fence, and this dog came, German Shepherd, bam, hitting the fence and growling, and he's ready to kill me. And it startled me. I backed up. But I was safe. 
safe because of the fence. Now, he could growl, he could bark, he could lunge all he wanted, but he couldn't touch me. A follower of Jesus is protected, fenced in by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan can do no harm. We make a mistake. It is so easy to do. We acknowledge the Lord, but we keep our eyes on Satan. It's much better to acknowledge that the devil might be working, but we keep our eyes on Jesus. If you look at Paul's letters, how many times does he talk about the devil? Six. Satan, ten. Jesus, 219. Lord, 272. Christ, 389. The focus is not on the enemy. The spotlight is on our Lord Jesus Christ. Acknowledge your enemy, your situation. Don't ignore it, but keep your eyes on the Lord. Resist your enemy's many voices. Instead, keep your eyes on Jesus. In James, he says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. There you are, acknowledging the, the enemy, but keep your eyes on Jesus. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Draw near to God. He will be close to you. Ephesians, or Ex- in Exodus 14, Pharaoh threatened with muscle and might. There are clouds of chariot dust. There are thousands of swords and spears. Yet he was powerless to harm God's people. If we read in Exodus 13, we see how the people were moving, how they were being led. The presence of God was visibly with the Israelites during this journey. We would maybe be a little bit jealous that they had this close of a presence of God. But it said there was a pillar of fire and cloud. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. A visible sign of the presence of God. The Lord himself ushered the Israelites on their journey. And during this incident at the Red Sea, it says the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. The angel of God, it's interesting, it's very possibly that this is a word used all the way through the Old Testament to refer to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son known as Jesus after his birth in Bethlehem. But in the Old Testament, occasionally you see the angel of God, and often the wording used is as of God himself. And this pillar of cloud represented God himself, who was guiding and protecting. He was providing that barrier, that fence against the enemy. In verse 19, it says, Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. The cloud and fire was God's presence. Jesus gave light to those who trust him, darkness to those who reject him. He comforts his children and confounds his critics. He is the savior to the repentant and the judge to the proud. 
He is both guard and guide. He precedes and protects. He is the shepherd and the shield. He is the alpha and omega. He is the first and the last. Come near to God in your attitude, in your thought, in your conversation, in your prayer through Scripture. He is the one who goes behind gathering up our debris, our failures, our poor attempts at ministry. He blesses us so that we can leave a blessing behind for others. God puts his people in a position where his presence has never been so real to them. Using difficulty, he cultivated with them a greater appreciation for himself. So envision God's enveloping presence. There's that old hymn that says, leaning on the everlasting arms. When we go through trial, picture God with his arms around you. 1 John 4 says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You're not a helpless victim in a tug of war between two equally strong heavenly superpowers. Compared to Satan's limited power, God's power is off the charts. Omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and you are in him through his spirit. Sometimes the reality of sin, the presence of evil may seem more real, but that is Satan's deception. He is a defeated foe. Jesus is the overcomer. Jesus is the victor. So when you find yourselves between the sword and the sea, think of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 23, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Even in dark valleys and by hostile seas, if you desire an increased presence of God, he will be there. Throughout the Bible, people are affirming this reality over and over and over. So remember that God is near. Memorize some of those verses. Claim those truths. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. The Lord is my shepherd. Think of this God as though he is sitting beside you. When you talk to him, it's as naturally as to a friend. Not pretending that he is there, but recognizing that he really is there. Some think, people think of God as holding them in his arms as a father holds a child. Seeing God's very presence beside us brings comfort, but also restrains our behaviors. If Jesus is behind, beside me, I would be careful of my language, careful of my actions and attitudes. Through prayer, James tells us to come near to God or draw near to God. Come near to God and he will come near to you. And then in Deuteronomy it says, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them? The way the Lord our God is near us, Whenever we pray to him. In polytheism, uh, the worship of idols and of nature things, animism, they would go to a temple, they would go to a hill, they would have to visit their image of their God in order to sense their God's nearness. God Almighty does not work that way. There is no image, there is no dwelling place. Whenever we pray, we are in his presence. Prayer is the environment where we can solidly connect with God. 
We may not always feel his presence in an emotional sense, but by faith we enter his presence in a spiritual sense. Dwight L. Moody was the evangelist of the 1800s. He actually went all over North America and, uh, and in, through England and uh, Europe as an evangelist, as a preacher. When he was asked how he managed to remain in a close relationship to God, he said, there isn't any problem in my life there isn't any uncertainty in my work, but I turn and speak to him, to God, as naturally as I do to someone in the same room. And I have done it these years because I can trust Jesus. The pillar of fire and cloud followed the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years. Then it disappeared when they entered the promised land. Have you ever wondered why it disappeared? Because they were no longer one large crowd. They began to have separate lives. 400 years later, God's presence again manifested in the clouds of glory at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Then again, we see his presence in what looks like tongues of fire in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And since the day of Pentecost, we have God's presence with us through his Holy Spirit. That same presence resides in and around all believers, everywhere, every moment. You are not facing your difficulties alone. The Lord is closer than a friend or brother, and we need to recognize his enveloping presence right now. When things are going badly, when you feel trapped between the sword and the sea, when you are under assault, acknowledge your enemy, but keep your eyes on Jesus. He will see you through. He will make a way. He promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to actually live within our lives. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then God lives in you, and he is so much greater than Satan. Greater is he that lives in me than the evil one that lives in the world. Fix our eyes on Jesus. It's okay to stare. I'm going to ask Neil to come and to uh, pray our pastoral prayer and lead us to God in prayer because it says when we pray, God is there. We want